Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. So first, thank you for being here. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Inside Carolina if you're on Apple Podcasts or on YouTube so you never miss any of the content our team at IC puts out. It hardly takes any time, and it helps us out a lot. Also, speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us. So that's why I've got to remind everybody about Johnny T-Shirt. Johnny T-Shirt is the go-to shop for all things Carolina apparel. They've got your football jerseys, the t-shirts, the hats. And as the weather gets cooler, they've got all the Carolina hoodies and jackets you could ever want. They've been serving the UNC fans since 1983 on Franklin Street with the best prices and the best customer service because they're locally owned and operated by alumni. You can visit them right on Franklin Street or go to johnnytshirt.com. And don't forget, Inside Carolina, premium subscribers save 10% off their orders. All right, let's get to it. As always, I'm joined by my fellow Carolina football letterman, Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. Guys, no way around it. That was a horrific loss for Carolina, losing 44-41 to to a 1-4 Virginia team. Thanks, Taylor. I'm not happy to be here. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, we're just two weeks away from you. I mean, we're just two weeks removed from you saying that the Florida State loss was the worst loss you've ever seen. Did this loss already overtake that top spot? And what were your general takeaways from this game? Well, no, I mean, it, the, uh, <laughs> it was, it, listen, this was, this was bad news bears, what happened. Uh, you guys are hearing this on Monday morning, but uh, we're recording it on Sunday. So what happened last night was bad news bears. The, the Florida State loss was the worst loss in UNC history by comparison when you compare it against the South Carolina loss back in 2015, right? We went, we rattled off. 11 straight wins after that. And without that South Carolina loss, we were probably, we were 12 and 0, assuming that the rest of the season played out the way that it ultimately did. And it might've been a completely different year for us, a different ranking, a different potential postseason, um, a historic postseason for Carolina. So at the time that South Carolina loss was the worst loss in Carolina football history. This team is more talented on the offensive and defensive side, which is saying a lot because that 2015 team had a lot of players on it. Um, but I think that this team right now is more talented from a, from a Jimmy's and Joe's standpoint than that 2015 team was. So that Florida State loss was bad to me because we were ranked so high, whether it was inflated or not, is kind of irrelevant. We had the ranking regardless, right? We had the ranking. It was on the road. It was prime time. Everybody was watching. It was ABC. Um, you know, and we just laid an egg and we looked bad. And that, I thought, was going to derail our season. Unfortunately, I think – I'm not going to say it's derailed the year, right? But it started showing chinks in the armor, right? We are not – there are a lot of things that we need to work on. And I think the problem that from a fan's perspective, because that's what I am now, I'm just a fan, right? So I know the problem, the trap that I fall into that I I should know better than doing, and I'm sure most fans fell into, was just my expectations got inflated along with our rankings. Um, It's hard to believe – based on the early season success and some of the historic things that we're seeing from the offensive side of the ball, that this is Mac Brown's second year in a rebuild that we are so far ahead of schedule than we should be at this point. It's, it's mind boggling when you look at it, we're so far ahead of schedule that we that the expectations have become, we should be 10 and one at the end of the season, right? 
we should beat, we should be in a position to beat Notre Dame or split the Notre Dame Miami series and potentially have a chance if Notre Dame knocks off Clemson this weekend without Trevor Lawrence to go to the ACC championship game against Notre Dame, right? And we should be in, the, you know, our expectation is to be in that position. And I think those expectations are a little inflated, just like our ranking was a couple weeks ago at Florida State. Um, benefits, takeaways from what happened last night, Saturday night for those listening on a Monday morning. Um, is that pressure's off. I mean, that's it, guy. I mean, w- w- there's not a lot of pressure left, right? We have a few games come up that we should win, but Duke is coming for our throat. Wake Forest is always a tough game. We, you know, we, we lost to them last year at Wake. Um, you know, that's a, that, that's, that's a difficult game. And then you've got Notre Dame and you got Miami. And then we finish out at Western Carolina, so chalked it up to a win. So you've got a four-game stretch coming up that's going to be real tough. Um, and Carolina is going to have to – they're going to have to have a come-to-Jesus moment and figure out what they, you know, what they want this season to be because it's, there's, a, there's a very real possibility that we could finish the season 9-2. and two. I think Notre Dame is a winnable game. I think Miami is a winnable game if we play the way that we can, that we, that, that we know we can play on defense, right? Um, but I also think they're very losable games. I think Wake and Duke are very losable games. So you could, we could finish this year either 9-2, either and two, right? Or we could finish – What's the math there? Four and set five and five and six on the year, right? We could lose the next four straight games, beat Western Carolina. We're five and six and we miss a bowl game, right? So there's two very real realities here that could play out for Carolina. Um, you know, we'll get into the disappointing aspects of the Virginia game. I mean, my, my general takeaway, my theme for all the comments I have today is not going to be fire and brimstone. It's that, um, uh, Taylor actually just reminded me there's no bowl requirements this year under normal circumstances, right? Wouldn't be bowl eligible, but you know, no bowl requirements shouldn't be the goal either way. I mean, you should still be trying to hit that criteria regardless, but my, my, again, my, my general vibe for this podcast isn't going to be fire and brimstone. It's going to be, you should never score 40 points and lose a football game. So EJ is going to have a lot to talk about today. I'm going to have some things to talk about too on the offensive side. It wasn't perfect. Offensive line play wasn't great. We're still messing up some pretty simple stuff. Um, Sam Howell's holding on to the ball a little too long. I don't know why he's pressing, um, why he feels like he has to make plays. Um, he doesn't, but you know, we'll have some stuff to talk about. I think EJ is going to be a little more active today than me. So my theme for the, for today is you should never score 40 points and lose a football game. Yeah. Um, When I was coming up with, uh, the questions, I was like, man, this is going to be an EJ heavy show, but EJ, (laughs) EJ, what were your biggest takeaways from the game? Where do I start, man? Um, I'll, I'll say this, to not, not to, because I know we have some good points coming up and some good, you have some good questions prepared for later. So I'll try not to get too much into that content. But I think the overall theme of our defense is that we're undisciplined. And that shows up in a myriad of different ways. One, the tackling problem, the missed tackles. That's a discipline thing. I mean, we saw that last week. We weren't talking about the missed tackles last week. We were talking about how well we played, how physical we were, and how sure our tackling was. I mean, I think what we had nine mixed tackles. And yesterday, I mean, in my notes, I can see that there are a lot of big plays that we missed that led to them making bigger plays. They did not score. I mean, they scored a lot of points, but they didn't score a touchdown on a drive unless we made a big mistake. The thing is that we made big mistakes on almost every drive, whether it was a blown assignment, whether it was a penalty, whether it was just just a bonehead play. Um, the personal fouls. I mean, come on, man. That's 
that, that's the easiest thing to control. Control your temper. Act like, control your temperament. Act like you've been there before. Act like a man. Act like you're representing something that's bigger than yourself. And, and this is another thing, just like the tackling this plague, this program for the last five or six years. We're consistently one of the most penalized teams in the ACC. Mm-hmm. And I, going into the game last night, we were second in the ACC and penalties and that you and you saw more of the same thing I think that a lot of our young guys and even some of our more veteran guys are getting caught out of position way too much I think uh I know it's been a running joke of mine that Don Chapman has been really boom or bust but we saw a lot more bust last night than we saw boom he came up with a big play with a sack but there are a lot of times he was way 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 out of position and I think we really got exposed over the middle of the field last night so being undisciplined is one thing to really hurt us and, and the second thing is who are we? I don't. I don't. I really don't recognize who this defense is anymore. To, to take such a, to to go so far in the opposite direction of where we were last week, w- against what I think is is a less talented offense. I mean, but we saw more of the same. We saw we saw trips. We saw teams spread us out that we've had trouble with since the first game. Mobile quarterbacks who we just just kill us. And I mean, I know I know we'll get more into that. But I mean, that was. That was just bad. So my main takeaway is that we're an undisciplined bunch and we don't know who we are on defense and we're, we're not improving. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that we can change about the calls. I mean, I don't think that we, from what I saw, I don't think we were as aggressive blitzing last night. But then again, a lot of our blitzes weren't getting home and we weren't blitzing the same way and with the same effectiveness as we were last week. So maybe some of the, maybe some of those plays that look like four-man rush, maybe they were pressures. I mean, we just really don't know because this bunch really has no identity right now. I mean, we started out the season as quote unquote, the top running deep rushing defense in the country. And that's really been our biggest problem over the last few weeks. Teams are running the ball when they want to, how they want to. And it seems like there's nothing we can do to stop it. So not, not really happy about what I saw Saturday. And I really honestly don't have any high expectations for the rest of the season. I think that for us to win the rest of these games, we're going to have to outscore some people and, Score, obviously scoring 40 points isn't enough. Yeah, before I get into my takeaways, Pro Football Focus says Carolina just missed nine tackles, which sounds low compared to UVA's 15. But I guess when you look at the numbers and where they're coming from, it just happened to be on the plays that you kind of mentioned that every missed tackle led to a huge play for Virginia, where in comparison, a guy like Javante Williams breaks a tackle and there's three more Virginia defenders uh, still behind the line of scrimmage waiting to get to him. And then for me, my biggest takeaway is that this game kind of just reaffirmed the identity for this Carolina team, that it's a team that's a special teams mess. They have poor defensive personnel. Kind of like you mentioned, their front seven's going to get bullied. Their secondary can't cover. Uh, Don Chapman and Cam Kelly – both are very hitting miss and right now it's a lot more misses than it's hits and then it's a team where the coaching staff has clock management issues it's just repeat issues that we keep seeing on a week-to-week basis when this team really struggles and they're just not good enough to overcome those kind of um, lapses for a team that is in a rebuild and should be you know Mike said that Carolina is still ahead of schedule, but the the thing with saying that Carolina is ahead of schedule is that this offense and this defense are on 
two completely different timelines where your window to win with a guy like Sam Howell and Deami Brown and Javante Williams and Michael Carter, that window is going to start to close because these guys are going to get pro looks. And by the time the defense is good, you're just counting on the next wave of players to kind of just be plug and play guys in the offense where can they do it? Maybe, but right now, a guy like Sam Howell is probably one of the best quarterbacks to ever play for Carolina. So I think that also leads to the expectations and Carolina fans kind of seeing a guy like Howell and all the talent that kind of surrounds him on offense being like, if, if this team could just cut out the special teams mess and the, the coaches kind of getting in their own way, this is a team that, that could contend for um, not an ACC championship, but maybe a spot in the ACC championship. But I wanted to talk about special teams first because at this point, it's it's honestly become a talking point every week for us. The drop punt, kicking the kickoff out of bounds, and then giving up a fake punt to end the game. That's three catastrophic blunders on special teams. Mike, how do you put into words how atrocious the special teams have been for Carolina? Well, I mean – so let's talk about the fake punt at the end of the game. Let's work our way backwards. So the fake punt at the end of the game, um, I don't know that there was anybody um, – and listen, I'm not a Hall of Fame college coach like Mac Brown is. Okay? He's, he's, he's a better football coach than I am, clearly. Um, I'm not going to sit here and act like I know better than he does. What I am going to sit here and say is that I don't know how it wasn't obvious to everybody and their mother who was watching that game that Bronco Mendenhall was not giving us the ball back in that situation under no circumstances were we getting that ball back Sam Howell had just gone down they had a 21 point lead with five and a half minutes to go in the game and we scored 14 points on like six plays right I mean that game was it was it was it was over right and then we just clawed back and clawed back because we started doing the things we were good at we started taking shots on a very depleted bad secondary we did to UVA what we did to Virginia Tech the whole game we just waited until the fourth quarter to start doing it um so Bronco has is also a very good football coach. He's, he's coached a lot of winning teams, had a lot of success at BYU before he ever came to Charlottesville. Um, Bronco knows what he's doing. He ain't giving us the ball back right there. Um, we had punt safe in, but we didn't have defense safe in. EJ can talk about this more. Under no circumstances should you not have your starting defense on the field there, right? Defense safe is a call. EJ will explain how it works. Um, but essentially you just take it, you take your safety for us. When we played, it was Denora Cersei. You take Denoris, you leave him back. Everybody else plays up on the line, um, or near the line. And you, you watch for the fake punt, right? And you leave your defensive starters out there because presumably they're better at defending their backups who are running special teams, right? Our starting defense versus their backup special teams players should be a win for us every day of the week. That's why you run that. And it's in situations where you know you're probably not getting the ball back because they're going to try and do something funky. And if they do happen to punt the ball, right? Or if they see the starting defense out there and they just check out of it and do some little squib punt or something, right? And they end up trying to give us the ball back. Maybe it goes for a touchback. Maybe we fair catch it on the five or the 10 yard line, but either way, we're getting that football back under the, you know, in that scenario, we had our, our punt safe team on the field, but not our defense safe, our punt safe team. I was looking at who was out there was no offense, a bunch of backups. Okay. Um, who were getting really their only game action for the whole game because UVA hadn't punted, but I think that was that the first or second punt. That was the second punt of the game for them. I think. Yep. Second. What, what would have been the third punt. We ended up getting that Trey Morrison got that bonehead 15 yard penalty and gave him a first down and they scored a touchdown. Um, so that was only the second punt of the game. Those guys for the most part are relatively cold. 
there wasn't a lot of special teams in that game besides kickoffs. Um, so it was a, from what I, I consider that a, a coaching mishap. Um, I consider that a mental error on the coaching staff. That should have been defense safe all day long. Um, EJ, do you want to explain? And I got a few more points, but EJ, do you quickly want to explain what defense safe looks like? Oh, yeah, definitely. So the, the whole point of, of defense safe is, like Mike said, it's, it's putting your good against their okay. Um, because you never want to say – I mean, really, I mean, in our, inside of our huddle, we're saying good against bad, but you never want to call someone who's earned a, another Division One scholarship bad unless they play for the school in Raleigh. So what defense safe is, it's basically you want to have your four defensive linemen up there to, to control the line of scrimmage. Most of those players are going to be a quick snap to the personal protector. It's going to be some kind of zone, maybe a speed option. So you want guys who are used to defending that. If the balls happen to be kicked, then the linebackers and the defensive linemen are assigned, um, are assigned their um, offensive linemen, their linemen, and then um, the linebackers pick up the personal protectors and everyone in the back. This is, this is fairly effective. I've personally never been a part of a defensive unit where we've ran defense safe on a punt and they've converted or scored or anything like that. So I definitely expected to see something like that on that play. And I do think that, that, that that's a coaching mishap on that. But as players, you also have to be prepared and knowing what type of Correct. athletes that they yeah. have back there at the personal protector. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, so, so here's the other thing about, you know, let's, let's stick on special teams for a second. And I've been writing this down to make sure I keep my thoughts straight here. The, there are, um, you know, Vip, you mentioned it in your, in your, in your hot takes column that came out. I read that today. Um, uh, I think it was appropriately harsh. Um, you know, but one thing you mentioned is something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And that is, you know, if you win two out of the three phases, you're most likely going to win the game, right? It's, it's an almost guarantee. Um, one of the quickest ways to lose a football game, regardless of the phases is to give up. You know, so say you, say you have a kick blocked, right? So we're Carolina. Say you have a kick blocked, Florida state block, kick, lose the game. Um, you give up a kick return for a touchdown, right? In special teams, right? That's a free possession for them. Um, you lose the, you lose the turnover battle generally, right? Offensive events, or even on special teams that includes muff kicks, right? You muff a kick, right? Most likely you're going to lose the football game. Last night we had a muff kick, right? Um, our coverage teams, frankly, I mean, we're, I don't think they get enough, uh, attention. Our coverage teams are great. Um, you know, but, but if you, if you muff a kick, like, toe groves did last night which has seemed to be a theme for us right i'm 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 on pins and needles every time we're fielding a punt because i'm constantly worried about muffing the kick um for some reason we always have guys all over our returner um he's completely surrounded every time he's catching a ball now that's not unusual right what is unusual about that is to have so many guys around it's like it's like our front line in um you know, our front line, our, our pump block team, right, then isn't getting hands on guys and actually getting to their assignments and keeping guys off of the kick returner, right? Our, um, um, uh, the, the gunners are having too easy of a time getting down to our kick returner, right? And they're getting around him. And that's when you have problems with muffin kicks is when you've got too many distractions around you if you're a kick returner. And it can be catastrophic like we saw last night, you know, against a team like UVA who frankly is – uh, undermanned right from a talent perspective and schematically they're undermanned um they're not the team that we are they're not developed the way that we are they don't have recruit they haven't recruited the way that we have and they don't have the talent level that we have um but if you give a team like that hope and you give them life and then you make a big play in special teams I, you know it's a recipe for disaster and we ultimately saw what happened i attribute that muffed kick to us most likely we made a lot of mistakes in that game if we field that punt cleanly whether we score points on that drive or not i think carolina wins that game by at least a touchdown. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with you. It, it was a case, the coach speak after the game is always going to be, you know, Virginia is better than their record indicated, but I, I don't believe that at all. It's, it's a case that Carolina went down to Virginia's level as a one and four team, and they just gave up way too many of those, uh, those blunders to, to win a game. And the special teams has been awful all year. We, we, we talk about it every, every podcast. So I don't think we need to rehash it because we're probably going to talk about it again next week. But EJ, how would you explain the defense looking somewhat good last week against an NC state offense and then completely incompetent a week later where they couldn't stop them? I think at one point they had uh, six touchdowns on seven drives and I think the eighth drive, Jeremiah Gemmel had the interception, but it was basically every Virginia drive seemingly ended with a touchdown. I think it goes back to kind of what I was talking about in our opening. I think it's the, un, the, the being undisciplined. It's, it's not being in the right places um, where they're supposed to be, how the defense is drawn up schematically. Um, I, I, I took notes and I, I saw a couple of plays where Chaz was just completely, completely out of the just out of position on the, the uh, first long touchdown run that, that they had. I mean, Tamari uh, Fox got blew, got blew off the ball. That doesn't help any. And then Chaz goes down the field and he fills in the wrong gap. And, and this isn't something you know, 88 out of the gate. And this, this is, yeah. And this isn't something EJ that like pro we, Taylor, you talked about pro football focus a minute ago on the number of missed tackles we had. This is something mm-hmm. that's not being accounted for in missed tackles, but this mm-hmm. is absolutely the type of thing that leads to a catastrophic result is, is terrible pursuit angles. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, he's in the wrong, I mean, he, even if he, w- with the angle that he took just to, to Mike's point, I still don't think that he had a chance to make that play. And there's nothing that we can do schematically to adjust going from the first half to second half, from week to week, if players aren't going to go out and execute. If you're not going to be in the gap that is drawn up for you to be, then of course you're going to go out and you're going to have performances like you have this week. I'm pretty sure that there was a tight game plan last week, just like there was a tight game plan that these players and coaches worked on, put their blood, sweat, and tears into to be prepared to play this game last night. But there wasn't the same execution or the same want to. And, and I know a, a lot of the times when I'm talking, I'm, t- I'm kind of getting into the mental and, and emotional aspect of a player. But when you're talking defensively, that's mostly what it is. I mean, you know your plays, you're, you're reading and reacting, and you're, you have to be tougher than the guy lining up against you. As a corner, you have to be more mentally tough than that wide receiver that you're guarding or he's going to run routes around you all night as a defensive lineman you have to be more tougher you have to be tougher physically and and honestly almost as smart as the offensive lineman you're lining up against too because as we've seen from some of Mike's breakdown that the the, the level of, of mental capacity that you have to have to play those two positions is different and and, and I will admit that and, EJ, you would have made a great offensive lineman <laughs> I like to attack more man <laughs> so I but I, I don't think that there's there's anything that can be done, and that's the main reason this is dropped off. It, it's simply – it's all on these players. Are you going to go out and execute? Are you going to go out and play hard? Um, there are times where the, the, the people I'm looking to to lead this defense look tired. They look like they weren't into it. Um, the same pursuit and hustle to the ball wasn't yes. there that we saw against NC State. Yes. The physicality was nowhere near there. I mean, I honestly think that they dominated us on the line of scrimmage. I don't think that it, it, was, it was gashes there – 
like like you would expect to see from from the rushing numbers that they have. I do think that our defensive linemen did a pretty good job up front, but our line linebackers aren't getting off blocks. I, I saw a play where um, I think is that we had them pinned down. It may have been like the first play of the second quarter or something like that. And um, they come out and they have like a 15, 16 yard run simply because Chaz, Chaz was catching. Instead of initiating contact with the lineman who was, I mean, it wasn't a pulling lineman. It was the guard simply going up to the second level, going to his assignment. Chaz saw him and then caught the block. And by the time he made contact with him, the running back was beside him and out for a 16 yard run when we have him pinned down with a chance to kind of make some headway in this game. So, when EJ, plays, when, you're, when you're talking catch the block, you mean you're talking being the nail and not the hammer. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Instead for, of for going, folks that don't understand the terminology, right? Catching a block mm-hmm. is what makes my life real easy and it's what makes your life a living nightmare. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. going at a little bit deeper. I mean, when you're talking about blocking a battle between the offensive lineman and, and the defensive lineman and or linebacker, it's a fight to see who can get their hands inside and control either the blocker or the person that you're trying to block. As a linebacker, your job is to go down, initiate contact before the offensive lineman has a chance to gather his steps and gather uh, ahead of steam, make contact so you can then control the blocker. You need to knock him back at least a half a yard when you make that contact. Just, I mean, because he's going to be a bigger guy than you. You're not going to be able to stand him up and control him. You need to knock him off balance a little bit and shed. And on that play, I didn't see any of that. And that's something that's been a consistent theme. Linebackers just going in, sticking the blocks, whether it be their assignments in the running game or whether they're blitzing. So that's why I said in my opening, I'm not really too optimistic about this defense getting any better because there's nothing schematically that's going to flip the, the a magical switch on if guys don't go out there and execute. Yeah, I said it in my video that Mike had mentioned earlier that I'm afraid that this is just who Carolina's defense is at this point. And I I also said that recruiting and developing is the only real way out of it. But I also have a hard time believing that this defense could be that bad against a team like Virginia it's not like like I understand Carolina might not have the most talented defense they might not have the deepest of defense but Virginia is not a team that's sending eight guys to the NFL that's a that's a very average to below average offense and they've been a below average offense all year and then Carolina's defense comes into Charlottesville and all of a sudden they look like a, a top 10 offense and EJ I wanted a follow-up question for you because mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have been on the message boards getting after Jay Bateman, and it was a case of nothing working defensively for Carolina. But what adjustments did you see Carolina try to make as the game progressed and Virginia just continuing to gash them? I think they started to send more pressure, and I, I, think, I do think the pressure did, did become a little bit more effective, but we just still weren't getting home on our blitzes. So I did see that adjustment made. I do think that we came out and we weren't as aggressive as we normally were, but I, do, I think that has, can be attributed to our struggles with the mobile quarterback. We knew that uh, UVA's quarterback was going to come out and run the ball, whether it be um, – number 99, number five, or number 36, which are some of the worst quarterback members I've ever seen. Everyone on UVA's equipment staff should be fired. But um, I I think that we weren't blitzing as much because we were fearful of that mobile quarterback. We were fearful of some of the gadget plays that they could run because of those two players that they had out on the field. But um, towards the end of the game, I do think we got more aggressive. Um, You see something, and I think we start to respond and see that they were running the same plays, just like everyone else is going to do that we see this year. 
year. They're going to line up in trips. They're going to try to run the ball down our throats, and they're going to try to – even if they don't have a mobile quarterback, they'll try to get some guy and probably burn some guy's red shirt just to win that game because, I mean, it's almost a proven recipe that you can beat Carolina if you can move the pocket, line up for trips, and have a quarterback that can get you 50 yards. But as you mentioned – Carolina has a habit of making bad offensive look bad offenses look competent and they have a and they make average offenses look great and that's what we did against UVA so I mean so EJ mm -hmm. EJ, let me ask you so we talk about and VIP I know this is one of the topics you want to get to so I guess now as good as time as any if you don't mind me prompting it but the so mobile quarterbacks right we're going to ultimately talk about this so do you think that the issue with the mobile quarterback is kind of how it's designed so so fans understand and we talked about this Last week when we did sort of like a quasi-preview of UVA, right, we had concerns about they'd shown they could score some points, but they were averaging, I don't know, maybe 20 or less points a game. I don't know the actual numbers. Um, you know, but our concern was, hey, you know, they could put up some points. You know, can we outscore them? Clearly we couldn't. Um, but the other thing we talked about was the mobile quarterback problem and sort of the way that some fans understand from an offensive perspective – when you have designed quarterback runs, they're so effective, particularly in this RPO offense that's now sweeping college and pro football. Um, what The way football used to be run on a pro-style offense is you always had one guy on defense you had to book because your quarterback was just a guy who transferred the ball from one player to it, from himself to another, right? But he wasn't a blocker, and most times, unless he's throwing the ball, he's not active in the play. But even then, like in – in the passing game he's just the one throwing the ball he's not running the route catching or blocking so he's just kind of an extra player well he as an extra player leaves an extra player on the other side of the ball and you always got to book that guy but if he's the ball carrier right you now have five offensive linemen a tight end and a running back that's seven players to block what is typically a front seven right whether they're running a three four or they're running a four three standard or even a four two stack um, you know, defensive front, you have now a body for a body. And what the mobile quarterback does or what the design quarterback run does is it puts somebody on defense one-on-one -on -one with that quarterback. And here's the point that I'm making. Let's tie in our tackling problems here. So if we've got, I think the formula, at least as I see it, you tell me if you think this theory is right, why the mobile quarterback hurts Carolina so bad is that we are just not good one-on-one -on -one tackling in space, that we need to gang tackle to bring people down for the most part. Every once in a while we get lucky, right? But if we've got Cameron Kelly against one of those quarterbacks that had last night, we watched it happen, right? He's just not going to make that play on his own for whatever reason. No, this is not because Cameron's not a bad player, nothing. But for whatever reason, we are just a gang tackling defense. And when we can't gang tackle, we're going to miss tackles right? Mm -hmm. Or we're going to get drugged for a couple of yards for a first down or what, you know, what have you, because it's not necessarily the big play in the quarterback run or the running quarterback. That's the issue. A lot of times it's third and four or third and five, right? Mm -hmm. Or fourth and one, fourth and two, like they were getting last night. Right. And now they're converting first downs um, and they're keeping drives alive versus getting off of the field. So that's, so the fans understand the quarterback run makes it. So you have a, a hat on a hat. you got a Everybody, for the most part, in the front seven is accounted for. Now your nickel or your safeties or even your corners got to come in from the edge and make a play, right? And we just haven't been that good or haven't been that good tackling one-on-one -on -one or in space, which is all that's left. That's the only option you have when you have a running quarterback. Do you, that's my theory. Do you agree with that? Do you see that? Or am I a little off base? No, I 100% agree with that. And I think the, our, our struggles with, with that um, – well, well, let me make my, my, my point first to kind of agree with what you said. I think that 
the fact that you ha- now have 10 blockers for one runner, it's going to expose one of or one of two or both things. It's going to expose a hole schematically in your defensive game plan, or it's going to expose a hole in your talent level. Do you have guys that can tackle one-on-one? Yeah. Do you have guys who are athletic enough for this quarterback? I mean, whether that can be a defensive lineman, if you do it with the um, – if you do it the speed option way where you have everybody blocked up and you leave that defensive lineman unblocked to make a play or whether it's, it's, it's a quarterback scrambling the pocket and you have a, maybe you have a linebacker spying on him or maybe the guy who has a running back is just kind of playing center fielder right now. You have to beat him one-on-one. And I think that it goes back to, to, to the things that are the main issue with our defense with it being disciplined with the lack of tackling and the lack of being in the right place schematically. I think that when we did have people spying on the quarterback or someone designated for him, we weren't doing that good of a job of getting to him. Yeah, they weren't getting large 20, 25-yard runs, but it seems like on those key third and five moments or fourth and one, when we really need to get a stop, we weren't in a position to get that stop. And I think that's what's really hurting us. I think overall we, we, we didn't see like we saw in Florida State where the quarterback's going to have 100 yards of rushing. But those yards that he did get came in very key moments. And yes. it, it kept the ball movement and it kept the momentum and it kept their offense on the field, which was, which was I think, one of the big things. I mean, the, the time of possession, we're consistently losing that because we can't stop the run um, traditionally or with the, with the quarterback, especially with the, a mobile quarterback. Yeah, Mike, I'm glad you asked that because that was basically my question for EJ. If this was going to be the blueprint we're going to see moving forward for beating this Carolina defense, just finding your most mobile quarterback and let his legs open up the game. Virginia was four for four on fourth downs. They were winning on first downs to create those third and shorts, the fourth and shorts. And uh, I saw this stat on Twitter from uh, Brian Ives from ESPN. The past two years, Carolina is now two and eight when the opposing quarterback rushes for at least 30 yards. So most quarterbacks are getting 30 yards a game. <laughs> yeah. Tom Brady gets 30 yards you, a game. You could stumble into 30 yards very yeah. easily off, yeah. off one uh, loss contained. But um, Mike, going back to you, to my untrained offensive line eye, it looked like this wasn't the best of games for the offensive line where – a guy like Brian Anderson seemed to struggle in pass protection and the backs didn't have much of a chance getting hit in the backfield. And I think that was a case of Virginia kind of just selling out to stop the run. But what did you see along the front of Carolina's offense? So I saw the same problems that that we've seen for a while. Um, And that is pressure right up the middle. And we're not talking exotic looks. We're not talking, we're not talking a, you know, traditional, like a John Tenuta blitz package. Um, Defense, for those who Georgia Tech defense coordinator, NC State defensive coordinator, he was at Duke. He's been in a lot of places. Um, his blitz packages are a nightmare. Um, we're not talking about LSU cover zero all out blitz, right? We're not talking about stuff that's just unblockable. We're talking about single A gaps, um, cross dogs up the middle, right? So double A gaps or, 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 or an AB blitz, right? From, from your linebackers, nothing cr- with a three or a four man rush behind it. So what you're really looking at is you're looking at a f- at five man pressure. We normally have six man blocking protection up there. So you got all five on so offensive linemen and a back or a tight end who's in there in protection. We usually have more people set up to take on those blockers than they actually or take on those, the, those defenders, then we have actual guys bringing pressure. Um, it's troubling to see so much pressure right up the middle, but I think I watched uh, Zane Zandier, number zero, um, and for the record, 
I'm, I'm here for the number zero in college football. I think that's awesome, by the way. I don't, I don't know why it took so long to get number zero, but that's, uh, that's cool. Uh, but Zane Zandier, one of their linebackers, did a really good job last night. You can see this was part of their game plan, that when you see the, when you see the center engage, right? So when the defensive line moves, um, you know, when you've got, when you've got a, a shade crossing the center's face, right? And you can tell that you have a six-man protection on, right? Where you have the guard and the center are essentially vicing on that low technique. Um, we call the low technique the, the shade, right? A zero or a one technique. Um, you got the, so you have a center and a guard vicing on that, on that low technique. You've got one-on-one with a guard on a three technique or a head up two, um, two eye. You've got your tackles are one-on-one with the defensive ends, right? When you see the center, then take that shade who's crossing face, right? And lock in with that. And you've got the center and the offside guard are both eaten up by this one guy and focusing on this shade in the middle. Okay. What, what Zane Zandier did, which is what Chaz Surratt does a lot. And last year was substantially more effective than he's been doing it this year, but we call it green dogging, right? So you watch as a linebacker, you watch for the offensive lineman to get engaged, right? Whoever's, whichever defensive lineman's in your gap, you watch for them to get engaged. So for Zane Zandier playing there in the middle, you're looking at that shade, right? That low technique defensive tackle. When he gets locked on with those, with those interior two offensive linemen, the center and the guard, and then the back, right, either gets engaged with an outside rusher, right? So say you've got a B-gap blitz or something coming, the back takes that guy, or the back sees nothing coming and then releases for a route is really the most common time you see this, right? When the back releases for a route, you will then see that linebacker, again, we call it green dogging, will then just elect a blitz, right? He's not a spy. He's not really an extra guy, but what he is, he's close enough to the line of scrimmage and his responsibility, right, isn't necessarily a threat because if he had that back and that back release the flat and it's the middle linebacker at this point, he might as well just blitz. You'll see that middle linebacker, right? Then blitz tight. He'll rush tight off the hip of that, of that shade. Who's crossing face. I saw this two or three different times last night. Okay. And we didn't have an answer for it. It becomes essentially a twist. It's real simple. It's if you know, it's coming, right? If you watch the film and you see it happen on film, it's real easy, right? Center seat feels that shade cross his face, right? He's with that offside guard who is either covered or not covered. That three technique maybe loops out. That defensive end drops into the flat. This happened last night, um, especially with their six, that six foot seven linebacker they had, that number 11. Um, he would drop off into the flat. Three would cross. Tackle would take that three. And now you've got guard, center, right, dealing with a shade. Zandier, middle linebacker, rubbing tight off the hip of that shade. And instead of just passing it off with Brian Anderson, then passing off that shade to this guard right here and getting off on this linebacker like you would a twist with the defensive lineman, okay, we're staying locked on it, and he's just coming free and blowing up Sam Howell getting his face and disrupting the play. And that's a lot of the same stuff we've been seeing week after week after week. And the reason we keep seeing it is because we haven't stopped it. So it's on film. Right, Taylor, you talk about you know this is what's on film. This is our identity, our offensive line's identity. Our our our, and I shouldn't say our offensive line. Our pass protection scheme identity is that there is always going to be a free runner. The the difference is this is college. This isn't the NFL. In the NFL, there's always a free runner because you can bring more pressure, right? Then the offense is set up to block because you've got presumably good enough athletes on the outside with your corners and your secondary and your linebackers. They can cover one-on-one. They don't need help, right? They can drop in the man, right? Um, and they don't, they don't need help. So you can bring more guys than we can necessarily block. So hot routes are a thing, right, in the league, but they shouldn't have to be a thing in college, right? Sam Pittman explained this beautifully to us when, when we were 
when we were in school is that there should never be a situation, right? Or at least under most circumstances where you've got six man protection and they bring more people than you can block. Cause we can always check into a better protection. We can always check into a slide protection and cover everything up and make sure we got enough people for them because in college, right? Everything's on a string. So if you got pressure comes over here from the right side, right? From the boundary, say I'm on the right hash and it's coming from the boundary, right? Something is dropping over there. And then on the back end, it's going to fill. Everything is on a string, right? In college, if pressure comes from over here, right? It's all going to fill backside. And it's all going to rotate and everything's going to get filled up so that everything is covered. It's very even and symmetrical. The NFL isn't necessarily like that. That's why I see a lot of hot routes and free runners. The problem I'm seeing with Carolina from a, from a protection standpoint is that that standard college scheme, right? Defensive schemes where you've got guys that are that, that, you know, you got to rush, you got a guy drop and everybody fills and finds their little zone and finds their area and everything's nice and symmetrical and even and everything's accounted for still ends up with a, with somebody rushing free. And I don't understand why that continues to happen. There's a, there's a, a there, there's breakdowns in our protection that aren't necessarily our guys getting beat in their one-on-one -on -one assignments on the offensive line um, or even our backs or tight ends. Um, although Turner or, uh, not Turner Walston, <laughs> Garrett Walston, um, uh, Garrett couldn't, couldn't block a soul on the edge last night, unfortunately. And Garrett's had a great, a great year, by the way. Uh, again, I'm not disparaging Garrett. He had, he just blocking wise, he had a rough night last night. Um, but we just haven't from our combo players, our running backs and our tight ends haven't contributed to the, uh, to pass protection in the way that I'd like to see. And then we have problems on the offensive line, particularly in the interior of passing off green dogs and passing off very simple pressures, um, green, you know, again, single blitzers and, uh, and stuff like that. And we're going to continue to see that stuff until, until we get it figured out. Um, when it comes to the offensive line and that, there's your football theory for the day, by the way, <laughs> for, for the listeners. When it comes to the offensive line, um, for as good as Sam Howell is, is that something he's supposed to be aware of who's unaccounted for or is the line <laughs> checking out of it? Because for as good as Sam Howell is, and I think he I'm, – I'm on the record saying I think he's probably the best quarterback that's ever played for Carolina, but it feels like he's being coached to where it doesn't seem like he understands pre-snap when someone on the rush is unaccounted for or – even being able to recognize, recognize where that pressure is coming from. Uh, it's possible that he's not. Um, I, I've heard some things, you know, the way that Longo teaches that, that Sam may not be taught, um, you know, for better, or for worse. I mean, Longo's system works in a lot of, in a lot of respects, right? Longo has his theory. He's been an offensive coordinator for the vast majority of his career. So he got promoted early because he knows what he's doing and he's held that position for a very long time in many different programs. Um, but for better, or for worse, I've heard some things in terms of the way that Longo teaches um, in terms of eye discipline and sort of what you're looking at in terms of keys from the quarterback position that Sam may not be as focused on who that free rusher is going to be because we're more concerned about, well, here's your, here's your, here's your primary, here's your secondary read, bang, bang, get it out. Now you don't even have to worry about that guy theoretically. The problem that I'm seeing with Sam now is something I talked about earlier, and we seem to have been talking about this for many weeks now, is that he's holding the ball and pressing and trying to make plays. Um, and where that's getting us in trouble is that he's taking sacks he doesn't necessarily need to take. He's taking hits he doesn't need to take. It's leading to problems, right? Not throwing the ball away is getting us out of field goal range, right? 
Um, I, that happened a couple of times last night. You know, he took, he took a sack or a hit or started running around and he lost seven or eight yards. And now we don't even have a chance for a field goal or to go for it on fourth down. Um, the other time we saw a fumble lost um, instead of just throwing the ball away, understanding that I'm not, I got nothing here. I'm just going to throw the ball away and live, live, live to fight another play, right? Or punt it and pin them deep and then let our defense try to make a play. You know, maybe this will be the one drive they do tonight. Um, instead, he's trying to press and make plays that a, a kid of his talent level, a kid of his caliber doesn't necessarily need to do. Um, I don't think that's a I, – maybe he's got too much moxie. Maybe he's got too much savvy. Maybe, he, you know, maybe he's putting too much on his shoulders. It could also be that maybe he's not being taught where those free rushers are coming from and he doesn't know when to expect it and that he panics. That could very well be it too. Um, I, again, I'm not in those offensive meetings. I'm not in those install meetings, um, you know, with Longo and with the offense. So I don't know exactly what he's being taught, but I, I've heard some things that maybe his, his, his primary focus are his reads and less so understanding his protections. Uh, but that being said, he shouldn't have to worry about his protection because any six or seven man protection we have should be able to pick up anything. Um, so I, I think there's, you know, I don't think it's a, a talent issue. We've had a lot of shuffling on the offensive line, right? I saw Josh Azudu at right tackle last night. Um, he's kind of all over the place. So we're shuffling players. Different guys are playing next to each other a lot. It seems that's a recipe for disaster. We talk about cohesiveness on the offensive line a lot. Um, you know, so different guys playing next to different guys is going to create problems. So maybe that's got something to do with it. But I think, frankly, it's most likely a schematic issue. And it seems like a problem with a very simple solution. I don't know why we haven't implemented that solution yet. EJ, I was going to ask you about kind of just what's going on with Chaz Surratt, but you kind of mentioned that last year, according to Pro Football Focus, his average defensive grade was 62.9 compared to 35.4 this year with this last game where he graded out at 29.2. That's now three games this year at a grade of 30 or under. So my follow-up question to that is, this Carolina coaching staff is constantly saying, you know, we need to build depth. We need to build depth. Then in a game where the defense is getting dragged up and down the field, you have guys like Chaz Surratt, Jeremiah Gemmel, Don Chapman, uh, Cameron Kelly playing 70-plus snaps still. When you have young guys like Clyde Pinder, zero snaps. Kadri Jackson, zero snaps. Eugene Asante, zero snaps. Tony Grimes got one snap. Uh, Jaquarius Conley got nine. Des Evans got 11, Miles Murphy got 13. So I guess this is just a really long way of asking, at what point do you just see what you have in those younger guys? Or can the drop-off potentially be that large between the first and second defenders to not warrant any playing time? It's going to sound kind of harsh, but I think the, I, I don't, I think the fact that these players have Division One scholarship shows that it can't be that bad of a drop-off from the terrible defensive play we're seeing now to what you could potentially see with these younger guys out there. I do think that is playing directly into the why we're seeing Chaz play so bad. I mean, he looks tired. I didn't see that same hustle to the ball, that same enthusiasm, that same effort and energy from him that I'm, I'm, I'm used to seeing. And I can say that, see that gradually over the last few weeks. I mean, of course, he was up for last week against uh, NC State. I mean, it's hard not to be, especially growing up in the state of North Carolina. So, um, but I, I think the guy's tired, man. He's playing way too many snaps. Um, and just looking at it, like, the, you, you think about the first two touchdowns that they scored. Chaz missed a sack on that uh, call blitz where he had um, the quarterback dead to rights. He didn't make that play. That's a play that Chaz, I would hope, would normally make, but he just looked a step slow. 
the next play, the 71-yard touchdown pass, he's running to his assignment. He's going – he knows where he's supposed to be, but he's caught looking in the backfield because I think he feels like he has to be the guy to make every big play. And I think that he kind of bit off a little bit more than he can chew. But I think as a linebacker, you have to know that you need to keep your eyes on your mail or your eyes on your assignment. That's the only thing that matters. You you only make a – as a matter of fact, if you go outside of your assignment and make a defensive play, you will still get bitched by most defensive coordinators, at least most old-school defensive coordinators, because the next time you try that, it's not going to be the same. And I, and I think that he needs to learn to make plays within the confines of the defense because Coach Bateman is putting him, him in a position to make these type of plays, and it's just not happening. I mean, he's laying on blocks. He's not – I mean, even on that 71-yard touchdown pass, you can see that he kind of ran out of gas or gave up around the 30-yard line. And I think that – I mean – you see plays like you guys like DK Metcalf who, who are making plays running Ooh. from the goal line that are, that are saving touchdowns. And, and, and you think of a guy that is a defensive player who's a great athlete um, and who has the speed and, and I think the, the ability to chase someone down, you just don't see him do that. And we know that Chaz isn't a guy that's soft mentally that doesn't have the passion or want to. I mean, you can only do so much physically. There's only so many times you can go on that reservoir before you start coming up empty, and I think you're seeing that a lot. And, I mean, and even with our younger guys, I mean, Cameron Kelly, God bless his heart, and Don Chapman, they're both sophomores, but you can see that they're sophomores. They're getting caught out of position. Um, there, there was one play where I think it was second and six. Um, Cam Kelly had to, had him uh, stopped at the line. No, it was third and six. Had him stopped at the line of scrimmage. Yep. He breaks that tackle, gets the first down. I mean, so – we're, we're leaning a lot on those guys, but if he's in that situation earlier on in the season, maybe he makes that tackle. If we start getting these guys reps instead of just throwing them in, and if you can ease a guy in into the flow of a game where the defense is playing well and he has guys all around him making the right decisions to where so his one mistake or not executing as well as that starter may might not cause as much mayhem or take away from the defense as much. So I think you need to mix those guys in there, or you're going to see what we're seeing. You're going to see a bunch of young, inexperienced guys out there because they have to be, not because we're seeing what they really can get. I mean, you don't want a guy's first time seeing over 10 snaps to be because the guy he's playing behind is injured and he hasn't taken a first team or second team rep all season. But now all of a sudden we're leaning on him, hoping he can make 10 solo tackles a game and be assignment sound. So, I mean, I, and I think, like I said, I think Chaz's poor play and us not getting guys and not getting some of those younger guys in the game go hand in hand. So we really need to see what these guys are going to be because, like Mike said, we only have a short window with the guys that we have on offense. I mean, this is one of the most prolific, prolific offenses that we've seen in Carolina in a very long while. I mean, even when we have not not good or not as polished games on offense, we still manage to put up 30 or 40 points a game. So you're telling me that as a Division One defense, we can't, we can't hold a team to win. If if you give me if you could tell me my offense can is, is automatic for forty points every week, I'm thinking we're undefeated, and I, I'm going to try to yeah. will my way to that. So I mean, I, I think until we develop depth, true depth, not just saying that we recruited a four or five star or we have guys with experience in that position, because that's not real depth. Real depth is having minimal, as you mentioned, minimal drop off from player to player to player, no matter what. And and we don't establish that. We only establish that by getting guys in the mix when, when it's really live bullets and not because they're our last hope. That was my biggest criticism of Larry Fedora, especially the last few years that he was here, right? And, I, and I've said before that I think the world of Larry is a person. Um, he, always, he reached out to you know, EJ, you and I, he reached out to us personally. 
um, you know, uh, when he first took the job and invited us back and all that. I mean, that's great. Um, but my critique of Fedora's staff was that they just, they didn't develop players. They could get these recruits in, but then they were the same player when they graduated that they were when they were a senior in high school. And it just seemed like there was no real development that took place. So I'm with you on the, you know, the way we, you know, we have to develop depth, you know, you recruit it first, but then those recruits got to get better. There are very few players. I mean, Jadavion Clowney needed to, needed to develop some in college to be the, you know, to ultimately be the player he became. And he came in, he was all world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, I, and I'll say this too, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, I, I have my own problems personally with the News and Observer. I don't, I don't like to give them unnecessary pub, but Lauren Brownlow had a great article today that came out about we are, we are, we are staring down the barrel of watching a historic UNC offense be squandered. Sam Howell threw for what, – what were the numbers yesterday, Taylor? Was it, was it 440 yards and – It was something five, like that. I, five touchdowns? I'll, I'll pull up the exact stats right now. With a fumble lost. I mean, it was unbelievable numbers, right? And, and you would look at it – I mean, it's like this looks like a pedestrian day for him. 23 of 28, 443 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. Unbelievable. <laughs> he, did, he did have a fumble lost, right? And, again, you lose the turnover battle, and if you muff a kick or you lose something in special teams, right, then that's – you're probably going to lose the game. We had the muffed kick, which is a loss on special teams, and I consider it a turnover, right? Plus the fumble loss, that's two to one on turnovers, right? We lose the game. Um, but, you know, generally, I mean, you look at that, and you're like, man, Sam didn't feel like he had a very good game. Sam had five incomplete – he threw the ball that many times, and there were only five times that it didn't get caught. And he completed for 400 and almost 450 yards and four touchdowns. I mean, that is insane. Under no circumstances should you ever lose a football game like that. So Lauren's article actually is very good. I encourage a lot of people, you know, fans, to go read it. She makes some, some solid points. Um, you know, we are dangerously close to squandering what is a historic, not just UNC defense, but college football or, or UNC offense, but a college football offense generally. Because I'm going to yeah. tell you right now, Javante Williams, De'Ami Brown, those guys, those guys are gone. Like, I, Daz, I don't care. You know, I don't care about – you know, this doesn't count towards eligibility and everybody gets a red shirt and come back. Those guys, if I'm Javante Williams, I'm gone. I watched that dude last night get hit in the backfield three or four times. Like we had any success that we had in the running game was because Javante Williams is a man amongst boys. Like that dude, stiff arming people, breaking tackles, but you can't rely on that guy every time he touches the ball to break four and five tackles to get, you know, to get a, an efficient run, to get four or five yards. You can't, you can't expect him to do that every single time he touches the ball. Now, he seems to do it every time he touches the ball, but that is not a recipe for success. That, but Javante's gone. We, I mean, Carter's going to be gone. Diami's gone. Um, Daz is gone. I mean, so yeah, we, Lauren is right. Go read the article. We are dangerously close to squandering this, uh, this offense and it can be salvaged. You know, we can still win nine games this year, which is a huge, huge turnaround. Um, and it keeps, and keeps, and keeps us ahead of schedule, but it's going to take a lot. Um, if we're going to have to outscore people like Notre Dame and Miami. Yeah. I was going to end this podcast with kind of a glass half full look. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head there that this is still Carolina offense that did score 41 points. You have a ridiculous amount of talent. I mean, Sam Howell, what do we say? 443 yards, yeah. 240 of them were to Diami Brown. Yeah. You have running backs like Michael Carter, Javante Williams. Um, Diami's brother is starting to look good. I mean, when Shaffer, he, yeah. Kick when, Choffrey, when Choffrey caught that ball, he was gone. I didn't, I didn't know he was that fast. You have a guy like Daz Newsome. Emery, Emery Sim- Simmons. Emery yep. Simmons is coming into his own. So there is a lot of potential for this, 
for this Carolina team. And I think there is enough talent on this offense for fans to still be optimistic that this team can turn it around despite whatever the defense does and despite whatever the special teams does. So Carolina will try to rebound Saturday back to the noon kickoffs at Wallace Wade to take on Duke for the victory bell. I normally end the podcast by saying I can't wait to break it down, but after this game, I'd kind of be lying. So I'm just, I'm just glad. End. I'm just glad it's not a night game. I've never been so happy for a new kickoff in my life because we can't handle prime time, boys. No, like we cannot. This, we, we cannot. cannot. Give us, give us new kickoffs the rest of the year. And for God's sake, Phil Longo, stop taking 20 seconds in between plays in the no huddle <laughs> offense. I've never seen anything like it in my life. All right, guys. We'll talk next week. All right, see you guys. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.